the Jericho Network on Westwood One. This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Mitch LaFawn. Welcome to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Joining me on the phone from beautiful Arizona, it is the one, the only, Alan Niven. Good day, Sir Alan. How are you? Good day, Mitch. I'm good. I'm upright and I'm breathing. That's an achievement at my age. I'm starting to get at that age too. Not yet. Not not as not as advanced, but yeah, <laughs> I understand that. Yeah, when we were nippers a long time ago, there was that attitude of maybe I won't see thirty, and maybe we should live fast, die young, and leave a good look looking corpse. Now. Most of my contemporaries are sitting around and going, oh, my God, I thought it would take longer to get this old. Right. Do we still live by the motto, hope I die before I get old? I think that that was a cliche even when it came out, right? I think we live by that, but I think we qualify it now by saying, hope I die before my spirit gets old, because the body may not be able to deal with what we made it deal with when we were in our 20s, but the spirit is still there. Yeah, yeah, kicking in full cylinder. Now, on this wonderful episode, I have got two great artists from Iron Maiden, but also British Lion. It is bassist Steve Harris. And on the other side, I have got somebody that you might be familiar with, Gilby Clark, who, of course, spent some time in Guns and Roses. But uh, before we get all get into that, you know, with Steve Harris... We spent a lot of time focusing on British Lion and a little bit of Iron Maiden at the end. And, you know, part of the reason for that is that when you have an interview with an artist, publicists will get to you and say, I need you to focus on the album. I need you to focus on the tour. I need you to focus on this project or this whatever, this book, whatever. And so that's that's what I do. I try to try to. I don't know if you want to say play the game, but you try to stay with what is asked. Um, what is sort of your take on all that? Because you were in that position, you know, uh, yesteryear where you had to bring the band to either a Howard Stern. Or something. Were, were there rules that you made people follow in terms of, hey, please don't ask about last night's concert. Please don't ask about yesterday. What was sort of your way of, of dealing with um, radio stations and interviewers? Well, my rule <clears throat> starts with something fundamental. And the fundamental to me is, do you respect the interviewer? Do you respect their magazine? Um, do you respect their, their radio show? And I would start with that. And I was, wasn't particularly inclined to put uh, band members with people who I didn't have much respect for. Um, it's interesting to me that you mentioned Howard Stern. None of my acts went on Howard Stern because I didn't like Howard Stern's attitude and his kind of snickery, nasty way of talking about people. And I didn't want to put my bands with somebody who might just as easily turn on them, um, let alone ask what would be intrusive unpleasant questions so I, that's that's where you start is do you respect the interview um the other aspect is that um when you go and do an interview 
Yes, there's a quid pro quo. Uh, they're looking for uh, people to interview who are uh, contemporarily in the consciousness of the of the audience. Um, you know, there's a new album or there's just been a big album and so on and so forth. And we understand that quid pro quo. Um, but the other aspect is that you need to be prepared to be able to answer the questions that are valid about anything that you do. Uh, you and I do this for fun. We do it because we have a profound love of what we talk about. Um, but there's also another slight aspect to this, and I don't want to overstate the case, but there's a little bit of journalism going on here. We're talking about people's histories as well. And for me to have a press agent say, oh, you can't talk about the past, is when I go, right, first question up is going to be about the goddamn past, if you're going to play that game. Um, and I think in any decent interview, you get a conversational flow to it and if a question is pertinent and if it leads on from something that's already been said then ask it that seems see that seems that that's the way it should be but but there are times when i've been told listen we just had an artist on a couple of weeks ago and we were said he was in this 80s band doesn't want to talk about it at all don't ask any questions about it at all if you do not sure the interview will will continue. They might step away. They might just refuse to answer. They might get in a bad mood. They m did that happen on on your end, where somebody in a band that you were uh, in charge of came to say, "Listen, Alan, I'll do this interview with whatever uh, KNAC that you set up, but if they ask me about my drug conviction, I'm out." And and. What would you say? Would you sort of scramble and say, oh, my God, all right. Or would you say, listen, buddy, you had the drug conviction. Just f face it and stop being a big what? How did you sort of see those things? Well, maybe it's easiest if I just tell you how I deal with it myself. Um, because uh, for some reason, um, I get asked quite often to talk about the long ago past and Part of my quid pro quo is, sure, I'll, I'll talk to you about the past, but with the understanding that we'll talk about contemporary things and contemporary talent and contemporary records. Um, you know, you scratch your my back, I'll scratch yours. Um, and when doing interviews, sometimes you get asked questions that you really don't want to go down that particular road and you don't want to take that exit off the freeway. So you don't take the exit off the freeway. You just turn it around to something else. And, you know, we all watch politicians on TV on a daily basis. They are brilliant at never answering a question. I mean, time and again, a, a simple question will be asked of a politician on CNN and they just go flying off to the left without even addressing the question at all. Um, if you're going to do an interview, take a little bit of skill with you and know what you're prepared to talk about. And if you ain't going to deal with a certain subject, then lead it elsewhere. Yeah, you see, I'm with you on that. I do think that the interview subject requires a certain skill. And rather than just sort of stomping down your foot saying, I'm never going to talk about that. They should just learn to deflect and bring it the conversation, you know, and say, well, instead of me talking, you know, let's say I'm in Metallica and some, 
say, hey, you know what? I would love to talk to you about the Black Album, but have you seen our new show? It is spectacular. And if you haven't seen it, boy, let me, you know, like that kind of thing. Uh, Gene Simmons, for example, I interviewed him. When was it? Either earlier this year or last year to talk about his vault. And I would say, Gene, you know, the time that you wrote the, and he'd say, man, have you heard the vault? It is great. And he kept going back on message. Brett Michaels also is great at getting stuff back on message. I think that that's a, a skill that you need to learn because I, I don't know, as an interviewer, I get uncomfortable when I get all these, and I'll call them requests for the lack of a better word, of you can't ask this person about this, 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 and that, because now you hear an answer and you're thinking, well, that'd be great to start talking. And oh, right, can't go there. And it's like, hmm. And, and, and to me, it makes for an uninteresting interview and it makes it for a boring interview and a difficult interview. And if you're a listener and you're sitting there going, oh, he's got whatever, uh, Ace Fraley on, and he's going to go there. And he goes, well, why didn't he go? Why, why didn't he go there? Why, why? Well, here's the other <laughs> thing, too. Here's the other thing, too, is for an interview to have value to a listener, uh, they don't want to hear the old um, marketing babble that the record label have constructed and already sent out to journalists. What they're looking for is a little bit of honest insight to situations or events. Otherwise, there's no reason of listening to what what this person's got to say. So that requires insight and honesty. So if somebody's you know nervous about the fact that their greatest hit was not written by them and you're not allowed to mention that, well, that's just plain dishonest and stupid. And as far as I'm concerned, that's going to set me up to go. Oh, by the way, love your version of, and did you what did you think of the original? You know, it's like keep it honest. Yeah, you know, and it brings me back to about 2004, 2005, uh, somewhere in there. The first time I interviewed Ace Fraley, the very, very, very first time, he had something coming out. and I I forget what it is off off the top of my head, but he had just left Kiss, you know, like eight months earlier, nine months earlier. And the publicist said to me very, very clearly, you are not allowed to ask any Kiss questions and I will be listening in on the call, and if you ask one, I will disconnect the call. And needless to say that that was the most boring, the most uninteresting interview that I have ever done. Because here is a guy who, yes, he had new product out, and yes, he had a new whatever he was, you know, new tour. How do you get somebody like... Ace Frehley on the phone, and, and now he, now the last one I did with him, there was no no rules at all, but I'm talking about really 14, 15 years ago. How do you get a guy who was in one of the, arguably one of the biggest bands in, in America, and not ask him about it? It just, like, like who are you kidding? It, I mean, you're kidding me as a reporter, you're kidding the fans, because the fans are like, seriously, we're going to talk 20 minutes about, you know, your new song? Really? Like, like who are you kidding? So it, it, it was it was silly, and I remember cutting it short after about seven minutes going, what, what am I going to talk about? This is So it was like the greatest interview of my life. I got Ace Fraley on the phone, and then seven minutes in, I went, yeah, I'm done. Uh, uh, what's your favorite you know, Gatorade flavor? I mean, that, that, that's what I was going to get to, and it was like, yeah, I'm not going to go there. So, you know, thank you, Ace. It's been a pleasure. And, of course, 
I'll repeat, I did an interview with Ace uh, last week. Absolutely no restrictions. That is not the same situation. He's not pulling any of that nonsense. This was 14, 15 years ago. And quite frankly, I'm pretty sure he wasn't even aware of it. I'm, I'm pretty sure he was doing all these interviews going, why is nobody asking me about Kiss? That's very strange. <laughs> you know? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll give you just one more perspective on this is that one of the things that I have uh, a respect for you on is that you clearly understand that you are in the place of the listener and you, you always seem to have a sense of asking the questions that the listener themselves would like to ask. And that is the best art of being an interviewer. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. And I will say this, uh, with Steve Harris, I was asked if I could focus on British Lion. I wasn't given any restrictions. There was no no Iron Maiden questions, but it's like, listen, we really need to promote this tour that's coming up in Canada. We want to talk about the band. Can you please focus on that? And see, that I don't mind doing because that that's a respect. And that's, you know, we we all understand that we're not on the phone with Bruce Dickinson or Steve Harris or Ace Fraley or Gene Simmons because they're our best friends. We're on there because there is something that they need to get out, a word they need to get out. And so, you know, uh, so I do talk to Steve Harris. We were given a very, very uh, precise 20 minutes and we talk uh, about British Line. We talk about the tour. We talk about the upcoming live album. And then, yes, at the end, we did get a couple of Iron Maiden questions in. So if you're looking for 45 minutes of, you know, tell me about the baseline on Aces High, you're not going to get that here. You are going to get a very compelling story about British Lion, about the tour, about the live album. And yes, you are going to get some Iron Maiden stuff uh, near the end. And I, I, I quite enjoyed it. And I thought Steve was great. And Anyway, I just I wanted to bring that up, the whole thing about how we deal with this, because there's a lot of times where it's very frustrating and you get these really odd restrictions and you go, well, then why am I going to get on the phone with this guy if he's not going to tell me the story? And then there are other times, like with Steve Harris, where you get a very polite request and they say, could you please focus on that? That would be very important to us. And you go, yeah, of course I can do that. You know, listen, I'm, I'm, I get it. We're, we're not out to do nonsense here. I get it. Well, exactly, and, and and I think if uh, if you approach your subject with manners and respect, I think you can usually get them to answer any sort of question. Yeah. You know, if they don't, if they if you don't put them on the defensive, and if they feel that you've got an empathy for them and for what they've done, I'm pretty sure they'll talk to you about pretty much anything. Yeah, I agree, and, and I do think if you listen to my interviews and go back to previous episodes and stuff. There, there is a, a beginning, middle, and end where you do get to the new stuff first because that is why you are on the phone. And then, you know, you get to a couple of big hot topic questions. And then if the interview goes for 30 minutes or 40 minutes, then you, you can get into the nitty-gritty, the minutia. So it's new stuff first, big topic second. And that, that, that seems to be the arc. And that, that's a good arc. It's, does it apply to every artist in every interview? Of course not. But it is a good sort of blueprint for, you know, how how to do this and stuff like that anyway. So let us get over. Well, I'll just quickly share something with you and and slightly confessional in a minor way. Uh, Back in the day with GNR, 
um, one of my tactics was to avoid one-on-one -on -one interviews because I found it far more entertaining uh, the more members of GUNS that were into in an interview and it gave a greater opportunity for Izzy's witticism or just general chaos in general, which amused me. Was there, and, and you answer it if you want, but was there with Guns N' Roses, Guns N Roses sort of the buddy system to protect? Because if you put, I'm, I'm assuming that every single radio station wanted either Axel or Slash, and probably just Axel, and so you went, hmm, he's a bit of a, of a wild card. Maybe I need a buddy to hold his hand in case it gets a little too... Was there any of that of sort of mitigating damage control, you know, whatever kind of thing? Well, I could always count on sarcasm and a very cool attitude from Izzy. So to have Izzy in it, in an interview was always a good counterbalance and he was always very adept at making sure the vehicle didn't take the wrong exit off the freeway. Speaking of uh, freeway, Steve Harris is hitting Canadian freeways in November with British Line and so we talk about that and without further ado, here is le seul et unique, the one and only Steve Harris. We are speaking with British Lion and, of course, Iron Maiden bassist Steve Harris. Of course, the band is coming through Canada. Five shows in Toronto, Waterloo, Ottawa, Quebec City, and my hometown of Montreal. Steve, an absolute pleasure to talk to you. I have followed you for so many years. Just a great thrill to get you on the phone. Yeah, it's great to talk one here, mate, as well. Cheers, mate. Cheers. Uh, so let me ask you here. You are, of course, in one of the biggest bands in the world, um, Iron Maiden, what compels you to get out on the road in a more intimate setting with the band British Lion? I know people think I'm mad, but um, I actually really enjoy it. I mean, I just love playing the smaller places, and I knew the guys from years ago in the 90s anyway, and I did loads of stuff managing them and writing stuff for them, and when they folded up, I was a bit gutted, really, that some of those songs weren't going to get to see the light of day, so I thought, you know what, the only way to do it is to actually join the band and get it happening again and get out there and so that's what I did and I'm glad I did because like six years along the line you know we've done quite a bit of touring around Europe and stuff and you know it's just been really fun but um, we just have to cram everything in around Maiden because Maiden is you know takes precedence and so it should yeah it really should um of going back to uh, about 2016, you had told uh, reporters that you were recording every show or a lot of the shows for a possible live album. So two questions. First of all, will you be uh, taping the Canadian run? And is a live album still on the burner? Yeah, we still want to put a live album out. But, you know, what happened really was basically, I mean, I, I should probably send said in interviews that we're going to put a live album out because... But I really thought we were, but, uh, you know, I thought I had time to do it. But then some stuff came along, which was, you know, decided to do stuff for Maiden. And as I said, it always takes precedence, and it, and, and it will always do that. So, um, you know, Maiden's the most important thing. And so I had to just divert onto that and uh, deal with that, and that was it. And so basically we've ended up doing some tracks first, you know, second studio album. So we... Looks like we may well put out the second studio album before a live album gets out there. So, yeah, we will, in answer to your question, we will record this tour as well. And then 
it'll be even more work because I'll have even more shows to go <laughs> trawl through and uh, from, from, you know this and that and the other but uh, I don't know maybe we can try and use a, couple, a song or, or something from each of the tours we've been doing or something like that I don't know we'll see but uh, certainly it's still a live album will be out at some point um, but it, as I said it just was one of those things I've really thought I had a block period of time to do it and then all of a sudden I didn't so but it is what it is you know this, this is what happens and Maiden has to come first always will Always will, as it should. Um, talk to me about the creative process for you going into a British Lion album. Is it the same in terms of the writing and the vocal style and the bass playing, or do you want to really, on purpose, try something different and either spread your wings or just be different to be different? No, it's just a natural difference anyway, because you're working with different people. Um, so I just, you know, I've always done that anyway. Played whatever the song needs and or whatever the song doesn't need in some cases. Um, we've made an old British line, and so it is what it is. And you're writing with, you know, different people, and you know, they're different thing, different ideas, and different styles to the table. So it is what it is. And as soon as you start working with something or somebody outside of Maiden, we'd never use it in Maiden. Cause some people say, "Oh, why don't you, you know, use that song in Maiden? You could have been using Maiden." Well, no, it couldn't because it was written, you know, with or or by other people. So as soon as it happens, it's not. Invaluable for the table for Maiden. Right, which makes sense. Uh, talk to me quickly about this Canadian tour. You know, uh, Iron Maiden, which of course is the priority, whenever you've come to Quebec City or Montreal and even the rest of North America, you've been greeted just with incredible open arms. Uh, what has the city of Montreal and the province of Quebec meant to you, both personally and of course professionally? And then just talk to me a little bit about coming here and presenting British Lion to these audiences. Well, I love I love that up that, that way. I just love the crowds up there. I love the place. You know, I must be totally honest, and people in Montreal won't like me for this, but I actually, you know, Quebec City is actually one of my favourite cities in the world. But you know, I like Montreal too. But Quebec is just—I don't know—it's just got something I—I I just fell in love with there but but the people in the Quebec province audience wise have just always been fantastic to us and hopefully they'll be fantastic with British Line too I don't see why they wouldn't be um, it's we, you know it's putting our toes in the water playing outside Europe you know Europe we've built, been building up an audience but even when we very first played and went out as a band we never knew what to expect because it's a totally new band at the time you just don't know, you know, you can't, there's no guarantees that you're going to get even people in or whatever, and it's no different now, really, we're playing new countries for the first time, and we've got to go out and prove ourselves, and, um, but we will, and, you know, hopefully if people, you know, will make the effort to turn up, and um, we can then prove what we can, we can do, and uh, I've always said that, even back in the day about Maiden, in the early days as well, was the same sort of thing, you're just trying to get people in there and prove what you can do. Yeah, and by the way, being in Montreal, I don't disagree with what you say. I've seen the band in all kinds of cities and all kinds of venues, and there's just something magical when Iron Maiden plays Quebec City. It's not even a show. It's some kind of like weird love connection of some kind. It's, it's, it's spectacular. Well, it's partly that, but it's also partly the place, because I just, all different times of the year, I just love the place. It's just a magical place for me as a city itself, so... And I, you know, it's not that I don't like Montreal. I do, but it, I don't know. Quebec is just some, but the you know the history and just the, just the buildings and just I don't know being by the water there and it's just fantastic. I just yep, just I agree. Love it. 
I agree. Uh, you will, of course, have a Coney Hatch on this bill, a band that you haven't toured with since, I guess, 1983 or so. Uh, talk to me about inviting them on this bill, and what do they bring to this package? Well, I'll be totally honest. Obviously, when we put in the toes in there, and I said, Andy's a good friend of mine, so, you know, I just was totally honest with him, and I said, look, you know, I don't know what we're going to pull, but I know what you can pull, you know, to a certain degree. So if we put both of us together, we should be able to pull more people than if we just come in on our own. But plus the fact that it'll be great fun to tour with them as well. And so, you know, they bring a lot to the table as well. So, you know, I'm sure people will be coming to see them rather than us too. But that's great. Hopefully we'll nick some of their fans and they'll nick some of ours. And that's the, that's the way it kind of should work, really. Um, it should be good for everybody, enough, but I, should, I just think that people are going to get value for money, that's for sure, with two, two you know, strong, really strict, powerful bands. It, it'll be great. Um, where do we go from here moving forward? Because I know that the legacy of the Beast Tour is probably going to come to North America next year, though nothing's been officialized, but does does British Lion have a plan for 2019 or are we really sort of thinking this is it until uh, Maiden sort of ramps it up again? Well, this is the problem that you've got with, with British Lion being a side project because Maiden will always, you know, come first and so I can't really do anything or plan anything unless I you know what's going on with Maiden and everything is based around that. So this is why, you know, it's, it's great to be able to grab the chance now to do some shows because, you know, if Maiden's going to be busy in the future, which it will be, um, you know, you just got to manoeuvre things around and do things after that. I mean, a couple of tours ago, I did a tour in Europe with Maiden, and um, literally the day after, um, I went into a rehearsal, and then went, the day after that, went straight out and toured with British Lion for five weeks. Um, but you have to grab the chance, because if you get offered stuff, and, you know, there's the time available to do it, you just have to do it, really. Um, otherwise, it, you know, you could go a year without playing. I mean, the last time I played with British Lion was in February, the Monsters of Rock um, cruise, which is again a first for me because I never played that sort of thing before, so it was great. And um, you know, so it's been a while. But obviously, I've been, you know, playing it all through the summer in Maiden. But it's, it's been a while, so. Um, if Maine's going to be busy in the future, which I can't talk too much about, but it will be busy, that's all I can say. Is And, um, you know, so I'll just have to do things around based around that. Yeah, and that'll be great. Uh, we, of course, talked about a second album. What is sort of the plan to release that? Is there a release date? And also, is it like that's the second album when we're done, or do you see there, there being a third album and a fourth album? I mean, is this something that you want to continue for... Another five, yeah, there'll ten. be a third album. I mean, we've already got material for a, you know, started material for a third album, so there will be a third album. Um, again, it's just a question of fitting it in. You know, we've we've finished, we actually finished the second album, but it's a question again from what we were saying before about fitting things in. It's not really much point in releasing an album if we haven't got a tour to do. So we've got to work out when that can be. So I'm not sure when we will release that, but I think we may well release um, a single track very soon um, and then the album will be whenever it is but um, also the live album that I talked about before got put in the back burner because you know something cropped up with Maiden that had to be done or I wasn't aware of that was then decided we were going to do and, and it is, you know so Maiden has to come first you know all the time and it always will so that's is what it is and um, 
So, you know, that's, the live album's got put on the back burner, but we will be recording shows on this tour as well. So I'll have even more, even more shows to go through and pick stuff out. Yeah, it, that'll be great. Uh, just uh, real quick, uh, uh, your daughter, Lauren, of course, put out Calm Before the Storm that feature, featured Richie Faulkner, now in Judas Priest. Um, what are some of the advice you've, you've offered Lauren about making it in this business? And what you know, advice would you offer anybody else's daughter or son who wants to make it and have a career? Because yours has, of course, been outstanding, uh, but it's rarefied air. Um, what, would you adv- what kind of advice would you offer? Well, you've just got to stick to your guns and just enjoy yourself and not worry too much about what other people think because I think it's more that these days than ever. You know, everyone's got an opinion. Before, there was a localised opinion and someone in Brazil had an opinion. You you didn't really get to find out until you went to Brazil or if you went to Brazil. So, But now, you know, it's on the web that night and everyone in the world knows it and so it is what it is. And, you know, everyone's got an opinion and not all of it's going to be good and you just have to be tough enough to take that and just be strong enough to think, well, you know, and believe in what you're doing enough to not to worry about those sort of things because, um, you know, there's so many positive comments but don't get bogged down with the negative ones because, you know, they're, it is, you know, it's what it is. You can't please everybody nor should you try. So um, you've basically got to please yourself first and then any fans after that come a close second. Yeah, it really does. Uh, just quickly back to the second album. Musically, stylistically, is it? I don't want to say more of the same from the first album that came back that came out in 2012, or or do we experiment? I mean, does 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 British Lion allow you a chance to experiment musically, or do you have to sort of be a hard rock band because you're Steve Harris? Well, I think it's evolved anyway. It's just evolved into something a bit different because we've been playing live together over the last six years, which obviously with the first album, we hadn't been playing live at all. So it's a different thing uh, now uh, to what it was. And, you know, it's still lots of songs with lots of melody in it, but, you know, if anything, it's got probably harder and, you know, edgier and harder, I suppose. Um it's difficult to describe, but I, I think the, the songs are really strong. Some of the songs we've been playing a couple of years live now anyway, but there's, um, you know, it's a really strong album. So I'm really pleased with it. And I think that, you know, I think certainly British Lion fans will, will really like it. And uh, hopefully other people will take it on board as well. We'll see. Yeah, we'll see, and we'll certainly hope. Uh, I'm just going to ask you one or two maiden questions, if if okay, but I'm just curious to your thoughts on the whole Rock and Roll Hall of Fame thing, because you look at the Scorpions and Judas Priest and Iron Maiden, bands that have influenced the world both commercially and musically for 30, 40 years, not considered for the Hall. Is that something that irritates you, that makes you laugh? That How do you sort of look at no, that snub it doesn't irritate me or make me laugh I don't really think about it to be honest it's not something I really and I don't want to sound blase about it it's just I don't really think about it I think I think awards are things that are nice to to, to have when you get them but it's not something you're really striving for you know it's not what it's about it's just not never been about that it's just been always been about just trying to make good music and go and play good live shows and that's it really and hopefully that people will appreciate it it's it's very nice when people give you awards. Don't get me wrong. I think it's it's great, but it's not something you would lose sleep over if you didn't get any. That's what I mean. Without you know, I just 
I don't know. It's just the way I am. I don't know. Maybe the rest of the guys might think differently than me, but that's what I think. It's not that I don't, don't care about them at all. It's just, um, I don't know. And then it's not that they're not meaningful. When you do get them, it's nice, you know. Um, but uh, I certainly don't worry about it or anything like that, you know. I think people, other people are the ones that sort of make a bigger deal out of it than us. About yeah. whether we've got one or not, you know. You can't worry too much when you're in the middle of, you know, South America in front of 65 to 100,000 people playing. At that point, it seems somewhat irrelevant whether you're in or not. Um, just quickly on your on your bass playing, what is to you sort of the most important elements of, of your style? Is it the actual physical instrument? Is it uh, the different effects? What sort of, what makes you a great bass player and what are the things that you look for in your playing well I don't know I don't really consider myself a great bass player I would rather consider myself a good songwriter than a bass player to a certain degree but I just I mean I don't really analyse what I do I think um, Michael Kenny my bass tech could probably tell you more about my gear and my stuff you know sound and everything than, than I could but playing wise it's just I don't know I just um I suppose it is a little bit different to what some people, the way people play, because that's what everyone tells me. But to me, it's totally natural. So I don't think too much about it really. Um, you know, I just play the song naturally the way I play it, and it's not like a technique I've sort of tried to perfect or anything like that. It's just been a very natural thing for me. People going about the, you know, the gallop and all that. But again, that just evolved in two or three songs that, you know, early on or whatever, and became the thing that people sort of aligned with me but I don't know I don't really think too much about it I don't think it's a good thing to analyse what you do or your style really so it's just more more of a natural thing and uh, here just before we wrap up because I know we only have 20 minutes um, you know when you look at, at bands, any bands, you always talk about how the lead guitarist is important and, and the lead singer is important and so on and so forth but for Iron Maiden other than Bruce and, and of course yourself and Rod Smallwood has been an incredible part of the of the of the the, the band and then the career. What has Rod brought to the band? And and talk to me a little bit about the loyalty to him because bands change managers sometimes, like they change socks. Um, what's he meant to you, both professionally and personally? And and you know why why is he as important as you well, or Bruce? Well, he's just a fantastic manager, you know, and uh, also Andy Taylor also is a fantastic manager as well. So in a different capacity, more the business side of things. But Rod, he's, you know, he's very creative. Um, you know, he's just very gung-ho with the way he is with things. And if you need him to go and basically, you know, help you out with something or whatever or shield you from something or whatever, you know, he's there to do whatever. And um, he always has done. And uh, he's just a... You know, he's just great to work with. You know, so easy to work with, and he's very direct, which I like because I'm direct as well. <laughs> so, but sometimes, you know, we can be direct at each other, and people think we're having an argument or something like that. And uh, but it's not. It's all positive thing of what just uh, trying to get to where we need to be. And um, yeah, he's certainly a character, that's for sure. But yeah, we, you know, it's just I don't know. Again, it's been a natural thing. We don't reanalyze really the relationship really. It's just. Again, I feel very lucky that, you know, we've got a manager who cares about us as much as he does, you know. 
Um, I said Andy Taylor also needs mentioning like because he, he's, you know, he's been fantastic as well. So they're a fantastic management team. Yeah, they really have been. So we surround ourselves with good people, uh, you know, any as well, you know. So all the people right through the management, right through the road crews and everybody who works with us, we try and surround ourselves with, you know, really good, decent people. And, um, you know, it's important, you know, especially when you're traveling around together and working as hard as, as we do to, together to make the thing work, you know. Yeah, and, and I think that's also an important thing to mention to up-and-coming artists. If you look at Kiss or Judas Priest or you guys or there's just or Metallica, there, there's been a loyalty and there's been a team in place, and that, I think, is a good thing to mention, that you always should have a good team. That That's what's also going to help you succeed. And then uh, final question, a lot of those bands have announced farewell tours and it's over and done with and the sunset is, is going down. Do you see that in, in, in Iron Maiden's future and in your future professionally, or is that something that you don't think about and we're not even, we're nowhere near being well, there? Well, I try not to think too much about it because, you know, it's not really a nice thing to be thinking about the end of the career. But, I mean, obviously we're at the, the, the arse end of the career rather than the beginning of it, so it is what it is. But, you know, we certainly think we could carry on for a while you know, yeah, but you just never know. I think you just got to take it as it comes, you know, especially when you get over our age, I suppose. You just got to, you never know what's around the corner, especially after what happened with Bruce and everything. So you just never know. So you just got to, you know, enjoy gigs, enjoy life, and just, you know, be out there and just have fun. And it's exactly what we're doing. You know, we're really enjoying it, you know, probably more than ever, I think. So, um, but, you know, how long are we going to go on for? I don't know. People were asking us that from 20 years or more ago. We're still doing it. We'll still do it. Well, we can still do it, and we, you know, we're still enjoying it. We'll carry on as long as we can. But who knows how long that's going to be? Something else might decide something for us. You know, you just don't know. Um, but again, I don't like to think about things too much because it's we're enjoying ourselves at the moment, and you know, you don't really sort of want to be thinking like that, really. Yeah, and and doing it at such a high level. I, of course, will be seeing you uh, November 3rd at the Brass Monkey in Ottawa and, of course, on November 5th at the Corona Theatre in Montreal. And, of course, very much looking forward to Iron Maiden, uh, whether you come next year or not. I'm still looking forward to Iron Maiden live again. Steve, absolute pleasure. Uh, just thank you for everything. Okay, mate. I'll see you at the gigs. Cheers, mate. Cheers. Bye-bye now. You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Rock Talk. And a very big thank you to Steve Harris. I personally will be checking out two of the British Lion shows when they come to uh, Canada. And hopefully, hopefully, and I'm hearing that Iron Maiden will be doing a North American tour in 2019. Nothing, of course, has been confirmed. But when the birds sing and I hear it, there's a good chance, so keep your fingers crossed for that. And hopefully, if that happens, you can maybe get uh, a little bit of time with Bruce Dickinson. Um, I have to say that uh, Iron Maiden is not something that I would necessarily order off the menu. I will say that um, my son, Corey, is a devout Iron Maiden fan, Um Maybe that's his way of reacting against the parent. Um, but one thing I will say is I am, I may not be a huge Iron Maiden fan, but I'm a huge fan of Bruce Dickinson, um, who I think is a very interesting guy, uh, extraordinarily talented in 
really interesting ways. I mean, this is a guy who's really, really good with uh, sword fighting. Um, and if I remember correctly, uh, even qualified to be in the British team in the Olympics once, or he was trying to get on the team. Uh, and on top of that, he, he flies the band around in jets. He, he can fly any kind of jet. I mean, that's pretty amazing. And on top of that, when I've been in his company, I found him to be an absolute gentleman and really pleasant and very kind to those around him. So I'm a big Bruce Dickinson fan. Yeah, I agree. In fact, I did interview Bruce, uh, I think in the spring, he was talking about his book, or maybe it was like in, but earlier this year. And uh, again, we focused on his book. It, it wasn't a request for management to stay away from Iron Maiden, blah, blah, blah. But it was talking about his book. And his book had some great, great stories. So I did focus on that. But uh, yeah, he was he was absolutely wonderful. And even, you know, he, he had phoned me from a cell phone somewhere on the road. And it, it, they kept getting in and out of dead zones. And he just kept calling back. And, uh, you know, a lot of other artists would have just said, the hell with it. And he yep. didn't. And so uh, kudos to him for that. Now, speaking of talents, uh, let's get over to the uh, talented guitarist Gilby Clark, who, of course, years ago had a solo album called Pawn Shop Guitars, which I quite enjoyed. Uh, And it had members of Guns N' Roses up and down, left and right on that thing. It was almost like a Guns N' Roses album. Um, He is going to go on the road. He hasn't been touring much lately, but he is back and he's doing these shows Remind me quickly, were were you part of the Gilby Clark transition or were you long gone by then? What was sort of, just put me back, take me back to, to that. Well, the, the chronology on this was that uh, um, I parted ways with GNR in March of 1991. Um, and then about three months later, was when Izzy left and I was actually in Switzerland at the time and he came up on my uh, on my cell phone and I'm going what the hell is Izzy calling me for and he told me that he'd had enough and he wanted to quit and that set off alarm bells because I I knew that they had a Wembley date um, imminent because that was the la- one of the last things I did for GNR was put that show up for sale. Um, so Izzy left three months after I did. And of course, Gilby had the uh, unenviable task of having to slip on Izzy's boots and get in there and be a replacement. Um, so I didn't know no Gilby at that point. I did actually meet him. I was at a uh, some sort of function with uh, I was working with Clarence Clemens at the time, the sax player from the E Street Band, and Gilby was at the same function that had something to do with promo or something. I can't remember exactly what it was. It was tied into a uh, an LA TV station, and he came up and he introduced himself and we talked for a bit, and I really liked his vibe. Um, I haven't seen him play, obviously never saw him on stage with GNR, but the one time our paths did cross, I really got a, a really good vibe off him. He, he seemed like a really cool guy, and if there was a chance that somebody could be Izzy, 
then you know maybe he could give it a go. Yeah, I, I've I've met uh, Gilby a few times and I've done a few interviews over the years. He's always been exceptionally nice. I mean, he's just he's just a, a very laid back, yes. happy guy. You know, he just he really is. Uh, were you surprised that when they were doing the reunion in two two sixteen, I guess it was, that they didn't bother inviting Matt Sorm or Gilby Black uh, Gilby back and make it more of a use your illusion lineup, or or was it like, yeah, no, I'm I'm not surprised at all. Um, I wasn't particularly surprised, and there were uh, a number of considerations why it didn't surprise me. Um, you know, I know that certain relationships weren't that brilliant at that time. Um, and the other thing was that I had no doubt in my mind that Axel would want to control the membership of the band uh, as firmly as he could. Um, so if anything, I was slightly surprised that there weren't more members of Axel's uh, solo band um, claiming to be Guns N' Roses. Um, well, I'll tell you, what, my, my big surprise was that DJ Ashbaugh didn't get a spot. I thought for sure, because I, I you know you could see the pictures of them hanging out in Vegas and all. I thought there was this sort of brotherhood going on and that oh, Guns N' Roses... Oh, come on. I, come I, on. That was the one, perception. One, one top hat at a time. I mean, you know, <laughs> the fact that DJ Ashford would put on a leather top hat and, and go onto that side of the stage made me raise an eyebrow. But most certainly, there is only one top hat in rock and roll. No, but that's true. But I, I just thought that he had a great friendship with Axel and that he was going to be part of the band. I, I was actually surprised when he said that he was quitting or he was fired or whatever it was. Not quitting, I guess he quit. I, I really thought that, uh, if anything, Richard might go and uh, DJ would stay. That's no, 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 no. I, I'm, I'm willing to speculate that DJ was probably terrified at the idea of having to be on a stage with Slash. I mean, oh my God, that's like, you know, a pound of butter standing next to a really hot heater, you know? <laughs> I'm Whoops. sure DJ Ashbo looked at the situation and said, no, I'm not going to go up there and be compared to Slash. Not With, directly. Not directly. Yeah, I, I guess. Um, uh, yeah, and, and, you know... I know that there were all kinds of lawsuits back in the day, so that probably explains why Gilby wasn't there. Matt Sorm, that's a whole different story. I think it's just personality stuff. But but I, I, I hmm, am I disappointed that Gilby wasn't there? Well, I saw three shows and they were fantastic, so I guess no. But No, if I'm going to be disappointed that somebody isn't there, it's, it's the fact that Stephen and Izzy aren't there. You know, if there's a disappointment in a reunion, it's the fact that it's not a legitimate and genuine reunion. Um, and I would love to have seen Stephen up there. That would have been a great story in of itself because, you know, he's been through some tough, tough situations. He had a stroke in the back of a van one time. Um, you know, for him to be a, even playing, I think is fantastic. And I think it speaks to his spirit. And I would love, to, you know, if, if I'd been involved, I'd have, I'd have had, you know, whoever play the main body as a set, but I'd brought the full reunion on for the encore. 
and let Stephen play with, with his style. And hopefully he could have played with the enthusiasm and the swing that he played with back in the day because no one's replicated that. No, that's that's the thing. Eh? Even even and I know you hate talking about Kiss, but but Peter Chris is not the most proficient drummer in the world in terms of technique and stuff. But that drum sound on those early Kiss records is Kiss, and you yeah. cannot re- replicate whether you want to call it sloppiness or swing or whatever you want to. You just you can't. Not you, you can't be Peter unless you're Peter, and uh, Stephen is the same thing. There, there's a, yep. there's a, I hate to say sloppiness because that sounds mean, but there, there's a certain style that's just it's just Stephen. It only those hands can do it, and uh, well, yeah. The one thing that Stephen did have that no one's had that's replaced him is swing, and that's that's a feel thing. It's not about um, you know, being sloppy or anything. Swing is how you inform the groove. And no one had a greater enthusiasm for being in Guns N' Roses than Stephen did. Every time he got on that kit behind that band, he was so goddamn happy to be there. And he loved the band with a passion. And that energy and that spirit... Yeah, he's not the greatest technical drummer. We're not going to put him in a top 10 list of great drummers. But his heart and his spirit have not been matched. Yeah, I agree with that. And folks always say to me, well, you know, Neil Peart's a better drummer. And I go, you know what? I wouldn't want Neil Peart in Guns N' Roses. And I wouldn't want Neil Peart in Kiss because it wouldn't work. It just, Great player, but it wouldn't fit those songs. And so the debate rages on, right? Uh, but yes. Well, Neil... Neil Peart wouldn't want to be in any other band than Rush. I mean, right. I don't know what you know about that band, but I mean, it's been the three of them since middle school, basically. Well, they did have that one uh, drummer before Neil, um, and then they That's brought right. yeah, and then they brought yep. Neil in, and they was like, now, now people go, they they had another drummer, yeah, the first album, yep. they, what really? Um, yep. What's his name? John Rutsey or something like that. Anyway. Um, where are we here? Gilby Clark is on the phone. So shall we uh, go listen to our conversation? He's got a tour coming up, four shows, four or five shows, more. In yes. Yes. Sorry, Gilby. We've been yakking here. Let's get over to Gilby. Yes. Let us uh, let us show him the respect he is due. Uh, so without further ado, here is the one, the only, the maker of Pawn Shop Guitars, a great, great album. I loved it. Uh, Gilby Clark. Gilby absolute pleasure to talk to you and uh, before you have even a chance to say hello pawn shop guitars from way back then freaking masterpiece and we will talk about it but uh, that said how are you i'm fantastic i'm happy to be out here happy to be talking to you happy to be playing some live dates again i'm excited yeah, and, and speaking of live dates, you have, of course, in the past played with MC5, and I just had Wayne on the show, and I went to see an MC5 show in Montreal and just delivers the goods. I mean, how much fun must that have been? So we'll talk about that, too. But but talk to me about these four shows. You've, you've sort of been, you know, stored away or stowed away in a, in a recording. You can record- say inactive. It's okay. <laughs> no, but but in a in a recording studio, because there is an album coming out in 2019, from from what I understand, is that correct? Are my my spies that is correct. okay? So so talk to me correct. about that. It, it is 
is it a, a rock album with, with the full swagger? Are you, because you've been inactive, doing something completely different? Um, just what, it, what's this new album? <laughs> well, it, there's, a, there's a lot of, there's a few questions you have there, and I'll, I'll get to all of them. Um, first of all, being inactive really was more or less uh, just not doing any live dates. You know, we, I just kind of wanted to take a moment and a step back you know, and just kind of, you know, kind of reevaluate where, where I am, what I'm doing, uh, the live show. Basically, what I had noticed was, uh, you know, when I first, you know, started a, a solo project, it really was just because I had a handful of songs that, you know, weren't going to be on a GNR record. And, and I liked them, and it became Pawn Shop Guitars. And so, you know, I started doing some live dates, and it kind of picked up from there. You know, it's not like I set out to be a solo artist. It was just kind of like... Well, when I'm not playing guitar in a band, I have something to do. When I first started doing it, you know, um, being a part of Guns is obviously a huge part of my career, you know, and I would never ignore that. So, you know, we always played a couple Guns songs in the set. Um, and obviously it was songs that I can sing. <laughs> That's a hard uh, 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 vocal range to, to try to uh, attempt. So there's a very limited amount of songs that I can even do. So it always seemed to the audience was fine with that. I could play my songs. I can play some stones, you know, MC five clash, you know, GNR, whatever I wanted. And it seemed to go over well, seemed to me over the last four or five years that if I'm not playing a gun song, people are just kind of staring at me. <laughs> it's like, I noticed when the gun songs come out live, the phones come out, you know, pictures and all that. And I started noticing that this may be my only connection, you know, to an audience. You know, it was my guns affiliation. So that's why I wanted to take a little bit of a break, you know, write some new songs, get a new record out there and just, you know, kind of get out there and just, you know, kind of be myself and be who I am, you know, and, and get to play those songs for an audience and not people just expecting me to do a Guns N' Roses tribute set, you know, in my live show. Right, so so the new album though is is obviously not going to be a Guns N' Roses tribute album, so <laughs> which I guess would be fun too. But but musically though, is it sort of that that rock and roll, good old old school rock and roll in the genre of Guns or the Stones or MC Five, or have you gone totally wild and it's going to be some kind of space age? You know, <laughs> where are we musically? No, I, I mean you know what. For me, I think the best thing for an artist is to be who you are, you know, to be honest about that. Of course, you want to try some new things. You don't want to get stagnant musically as, and as an artist. So, no, it, it's, it is rock and roll. I mean, that's what I love. Rock and roll to me is, you know, loud guitars, you know, loud drums, just a lot of screaming. Um, you know, I mean, you know, the, for me, the Guns Experience, to me, they were the ultimate, at that time, were the ultimate rock and roll band. You know, they were, you know, just to me, like a loud version of the Stones. And that's why I was so happy, you know, being a part of that band was that's the music that I liked, you know. I mean, obviously, different singers, different guitar players make a different version of rock and roll. So, yes, this record is rock and roll. It's guitars, you know, there's very little keyboards on it, you know, maybe an organ or a piano here and there, but it's pretty much traditional. You know, if I have to put a label on it, you know, it's classic rock, you know. Um, they are new takes, you know, of what I do, you know. I mean, I really do believe that, you know, if I release Pawn Shop Guitars as my new record, it doesn't sound dated. It's, it's just a rock and roll record, you know, and, and that's what I'm doing this time. It's rock and roll, it's guitars for 
how fashionable it is this time or not. <laughs> that, that I can't dictate. My job is just to, you know, write, record, and perform, you know. Yeah, and I'll, I'll tell you one thing. That, that Pawn Shop's Guitars is such a great album. I, I have a, a GNR playlist in my in my phone, and Tijuana Jail is like in the top 10 right when you get started, because I, I have to just have that song. Um, but since you were sort of off the scene, not really touring, the last album, I think was a compilation, came out a long time yeah. ago. What have you been doing? I mean, was it back to Madame Wong's running sound or like, <laughs> right? Don't I wish. Don't, you, don't, don't I, I wish, wish right? But what, what have you sort of um, been? No, I, I mean, I'm, you know, it's funny because, you know, I get that a lot. You know, it's like, hey, you know, what, what are you doing? And I, I, I always feel like, do I really, you know, have to, you know, an, announce, you know, my biography of, you know, the current last three years? But no, I mean, I work. I work all the time. I mean, number one, like, I consider myself a guitarist. So I do get hired to do, you know, guitar jobs from here to there. Um, you know, I do a lot of production. I'm, I'm a producer. I do produce quite a few bands and artists. I have a, a, a really nice recording studio. And um, I just finished um, a new record by a band called Hillbilly Herald, which um, has been, a, been around for a little bit. You know, they've opened for Slash. They've opened for um, uh, uh, Steel Panther. And uh, I just finished their new record. Um, that's probably not going to be out until next year. I've done a couple different bands we also have a couple corporate bands that we do, you know, that's uh, sometimes they're corporate shows. Sometimes they're just like live all-star bands. One of them was Kings of Chaos. The other one was Royal Machines. And believe it or not, they keep you busy. And, uh, you know, a little TV movie work here and there. It's not something I set out to do all the time, but things do drop in my lap. I actually just got a song on a really big movie that's about to come out. I'm not, I'm not going to announce it yet, but it's, um, I'm really excited about that. Oh, that's great. So, so okay, we've got these four shows, three in California, one out in Nevada or Vegas. Is that the start of something bigger? Do we see you on the East Coast? Do, do you want to get back out in front of audiences? Or are these just sort of a fun weekend and then back to, back to what you're doing? It is the start of things. Um, like I said, the record, my, my new record is for the most part done. It's, it, I mean, obviously there's a few tweaks here and there, but the songs are done. Um, uh, we don't have a release date yet, but I mean, we're shooting for springtime. And so what I want to do is start doing this, like just some spot dates. You know, to be honest, to go out and do a full-blooded, get in a bus and do a tour, you know, I'm not there yet. I, you know, a, with a record out, I think it will help. So I just kind of want to get out there and just kind of feel, you know, the, you know, take the temperature, you know, of the audience out there. So there will be quite a few of these, like just four or five date things. I think we're going to have uh, a little Texas run after the first year. Um, this will pretty much be it for the rest of the year. But starting in the beginning of the year, we're going to do quite a few of these. Uh, I guess we call them like Weekend Warrior stuff. Right, Weekend Warrior stuff. Now, now is this with sort of the Gilby Clark band? Or, uh, and I'm talking about the album, or is the album still with a lot of special guests? I mean, you, you look back to Pawn Shops, you had Ryan Roxy, you had Slash, you had Axel, you had a, you, know, you had a whole collection of great guys. Uh, is the new album a collection of great guys, or is it just sort of the three-piece and you're knocking it out? Well, I mean, the most, most of the songs are recorded with the three-piece idea, um, but it is, yes, it is kind of like a greatest hits collection of people. Um, I got uh, Kenny Aronoff uh, played nice. drums. Stephen Perkins from Jane's Addiction played drums. Um, my drummer, uh, Troy Patrick Farrell, played drums. 
Um, then I had um, different bass players like Sean McNabb. Nikki Six played bass. <laughs> oh wow! So I, I, I played um, as far as I can remember. I think I played all the guitars and I sang everything. And I might have played bass on a tuner there. But for me, that's what's great about being a solo artist um, is you get to really take the songs to a new dimension. You know, by using different people. You know, and you know if anybody is familiar with my music, it's it, it's kind of strange because there's it's definitely rock and roll, but you know, there's some, you know, Beatles influences, you know, there's some blues influences. So that it's cheap, not cheap trick. Is there a cheap trick? Cheap trick. There you go. <laughs> Thank you. Good, good, good ear. <laughs> and, and that, that takes, you know, some different styles. And it's mainly drums more than anything. You know, it's like, I don't, you know, I mean, obviously somebody great like a Kenny Aronoff or a Stephen Perkins can cover it all, but I, I like that challenge of, you know, giving those guys free reign of look, here's my song you know, do your thing, you know, that, that challenges me. And, and to me, I think it really makes for a, a unique sounding record. Oh God. I can't, I really can't wait. I mean, and I, cause I truly, truly loved everything you did, uh, up until now. And, uh, oh, it's gonna, it's gonna be great, but, Thank you. uh, let's quickly talk about these two bands that that you've played with, obviously guns, but, but also MC five. So I'll start there. What was that like being around Wayne Kramer all the time and being on the road? Because because Wayne is great, but he's intense. I mean he yeah. he's intense. Um, talk to me about that and, and and just being part of such a you know well respected if you want band. Well, I, when we started the uh, you know the DKT MC Five thing, mm-hmm. you know it was really um, more than just you know let's just do the MC Five. It was kind of like a, a well, I guess is a hard word to say, but a tribute to the band. You know, we really wanted to pay respects to, you know, the music of the band. And Wayne actually had, I think he had two, maybe even three singers out on the road with us to cover everything. But it was just Wayne and uh, myself on guitars. When I first sat down with him to, to learn the songs, you know, I mean, I'm usually pretty good at picking out guitar parts on records. And when I sat down with him, man, did I have it wrong. <laughs> And when he showed me what the parts really were, I'm not kidding. It blew my mind. Like I went, wow. I go, you know, I go, Wayne, I hate to say this, but I couldn't hear that definition on the record. He goes, yeah. He goes, you know, we, we, we went for that, you know, and it was kind of hard to pick out because like in GNR, you can hear it. It's left and right. It's real, real easy. But, you know, MC5 isn't like that. When I found, when I learned the real guitar parts, I was like, this, I think, is my favorite guitar band of all time because it really lends for two guitar players to work off each other. Um, and also, you know, there are times when they're both soloing at the same time. And I love that about Wayne. I would look over and, and I knew it was his solo and I'm holding down a rhythm and he'd just look at me and give me the nod and we'd just both go blasting. And then there were songs where it was my solo and he'd be playing. And, you know, normally, you know, like if I, you know, I hear, you know, another guitar player doing, you know, you, you step back and let them have their moment. But, man, Wayne would just go. But as a person, you know, you're right. Wayne is intense, but he does have a great sense of humor. Um, what I love most about him is he listens when you talk. You know, there's so many people in this day and age that, you know, there's one-sided conversations, you know, especially, you know, well-known people. But Wayne listens when you talk, you know, he may not agree with you, but he hears you, you know, and, and I love that. I, I always found myself 
you know, just sitting there like in his audience, you know, just, you know, between two of us and just listening to what he had to say. I mean, he, he has done so much. He, you know, he's made mistakes. He's learned from his mistakes and he'll even admit, you know, sometimes it took me 20 years to learn from that mistake, you know, cause you know, and he even says it, you know, you're young punks and strung out and drugs was my priority. <laughs> so there's so much for me as, as, as a human being, as a guitar player, you know, as an artist that, that I learned from him. And, um, you know, he, like I said, it was one of the greatest experiences of my life. It, it was not the best payday. <laughs> they were not the biggest shows, but man, I had the time of my life. And, and like I said, just his company was probably the, the best thing that I got out of it. Yeah, I can imagine. And like I said, I saw him about, about three weeks ago in Montreal and He's what, 72, 73 or whatever he is, and he just moves like an 18-year-old. You're going you're thinking to yourself, <laughs> he's going to need a back brace by the end of this show and he just anyway, yeah. it's it's phenomenal to see. Um and then, and, and one, I'm going to add one, yeah. one one last thing on that. You know, also you got to understand um you know, as us musicians as we go through life, you know, and you know, people always ask me, you know, how, how come you're not in a band now? I go, "Man, you know, there are no first of all, there aren't a lot of new rock bands out there." And bands that are established know what they have, know the value, and they don't just change up guitar players, you know. So, you know, my situation is, is, is an interesting one. You know, you know, I got the guns job when I was 30 years old. So for me, one of the biggest accomplishments were even back at that time, getting the guns gig, having Slash say, I want you to play guitar with me, and also having Wayne Kramer say, I want you to play guitar with me. That, to me, that, those were, you know... Uh, just some really good things to hear as a musician. Yeah, I can imagine. And and just anyway, so so let me just quickly move to Guns, and we won't spend too much time on it. But obviously, they do the the Not in This Lifetime tour, and they go out, and they didn't call you back, which which I'm sure at some point might have must have been disappointing. And, and correct me if I'm wrong in that assertion, but mm-hmm. what what was it like for you to to, to see them get back together, knowing? the intimacies that, that, that fans don't know of, of the, the, the arguments and the business side and the lawsuits and all that stuff that we don't see and go, they actually did it. They frickin' I mean, how, were, were you beyond stunned that they actually managed to get on stage? I, it was beyond stunned is a perfect <laughs> analogy for that. I, I, you know, if you hear me say any interview that I ever set up until that point, I said, yeah, I don't, I don't ever see it happen. I'm really, really amazed, you know, that Slash and Axel got back together and made this happen. Amazed. I mean, uh, you know, I can't say I know Axel anymore. I haven't known him in 25 years, you know. But, you know, I did know Slash, you know. And to that happen is huge. And, you know, I say it today and I said it then. To me, that was just the biggest accomplishment, you know, is, you know, the two of them are, were a, a great working duo, I'm I'm so happy they're back together. You know, I look at it like we're all on the same team. You know, I really do. I know people think that the, you know it's, it's you know I'm I'm just talking. No, but 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 I'll, I'll tell you. I do. I'm on the team. I'm on the team. I want the team to do well. The team doing well helps me do well. I mean, you know, people ask me all the time. You know, if you were asked, would you have done it? I go, well, I mean, the real answer is yes. But I got to be honest, I wouldn't have said yes right away. I would have had to think about it. I have great, a great memory of those days. And, you know, I'm, I'm kind of one of those guys where I don't have to relive things over and over again. You know, once I've done, I've done it. It's, you know, it's in my memory bank. But I'm so happy that the team is doing well. I mean, 
you know, people can look at some of us, you know, outside the GNR camp, me, Stephen, Izzy, or, or whatever, and, you know, say that we're, you know, living off of the GNR, you know, uh, fame or whatever and stuff. And, of course, that's true to a point. But, you know, the thing is, we're, like I said, we're on the team. <laughs> you know, we, I'm supporting the team. You know, it's like I like the team. I love the band's music. You know, I love the band. It's like, you know, I, I want to do it respectfully. You know, I've never, ever, ever gone out there and done it disrespectfully. You know, I mean, of course, we all have bad shows and might not have sang a song well or played it well. You know, I mean, that, that's why it's called rock and roll. But, know, so I'm, I'm extremely happy that it happened. But you're right about, about the team because Alan Niven uh, co-hosts a lot of these episodes with me. And when, the, when it was first announced, we both sort of said to each other, watch this, give it four shows and it's going to be this nuclear. <laughs> we all said that. Right, we all did. <laughs> And yeah. now we are two, two and a half years later, and it's done wonders. I mean, Steven Adler's out there doing his thing, and whether you want to admit it or not, and, and you just said, in fact, that you, it will help sell your shows because people yeah. have an extra interest. It helps me doing what I'm doing because when I interview Slash or when I go to a show and, and there's something Guns N' Roses to talk about, more people listen. It's not just one band doing one show. It, they really affect the entire industry, as does Kiss going yep. out there, as does Metallica going out there. Yep. And, and you can't badmouth it because... Absolutely. But you better not. You better not. I mean, if you do, you know, then it's, it's deeper than that. You know, it, it's, it's deeper than, you know, seeing the band or supporting the band and stuff, you know. I mean, I have my feelings about, you know, this version of the band, but that doesn't mean anything. I'm still on the team. I'm still, you know, look, the band's out there. It's doing great. They're selling out, you know, tickets. Um, you know, like I said, it, it helps in every way. I want to be respectful to the legacy of the band. I would never, ever damage anything like that, ever. You know, I don't, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to be known later on, you know, where after we're all dead and gone, being the guy that had sour grapes about stuff just because he didn't get a gig, <laughs> you know? Yeah, and, and listen, from the fan perspective, Obviously, we all want the original five. You know, we, for Kiss, we want the original four. And it, me too. Right. And me too. <laughs> and it doesn't happen that way. But I would love for them at some point, you know, the next time they come through L.A. and just say, hey, Gilby, come and play one song with us. Hey, Steven, come play another couple. That would be that would be great. And, and I'm sure that if they did, you would go. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it, it's out there. Um, you know, they did ask me to come out and play, you know, on, on this tour. You know, I got a call. Um, it wasn't the best timing <laughs> when they asked me, um, and, it, and it didn't work out. But, you know, they did ask. And, and actually, to be honest, I never saw that coming. I mean, I even said it in the beginning. I never, I never expected to be asked to do part of this tour. You know, I'm, you know, the reality is I am down on the food chain. You know, it should be Izzy. You know, and, you know, Richard, the guitar player, has been doing a great job. If, if he's, you know, still part of Axel's band, why would you fire him? You know, there's there's no reason to, you know. Oh, and, and, and Richard's doing a great job. Um, once you get back to making new albums and the next one comes out in 2019 stuff, do you see yourself sort of increasing the pace and getting back on sort of the two year, you know, year and a half, two year cycle of making new music? Or do you start thinking, hmm, is this going to be my last one? I mean, <laughs> where, where, but, but seriously, where are we in the thinking? Is this the beginning of something new or is this sort of the, the period at the end of the sentence? Well, you know, that's a, that's a very good question because, you know, the, I don't know if there is a clear-cut answer to that because I do have both those thoughts in my head. You know, there does, um, 
first of all, making this record, which, you know, people say, well, you know, you've been talking about it for years and stuff. I go, yeah, I've been talking about it for years, but I, you know, I haven't been recording it for years. You know, it's like I go in, you know, different periods and stuff, but artistically, um, one of the main reasons I didn't make a record up until this point was beyond the honest answer is I, I didn't think the songs were good enough. I, I just felt like they were just songs, you know, and they didn't have anything special or unique for, you know, what, what I like, like, is it a record I would buy And this new record? Like I said, I'm happy with the songs. I challenged myself lyrically. I challenged myself music musically and, and I like it. And it also, you know, it, it's so true. It's just like anything else. You know, you, you get up and you work out that day, just, you know, do a little cardio or whatever. It does make you feel better that day. It's the same thing with songwriting. Start writing a couple new songs, challenge yourself. And it does start the creative juices flowing again. And I, where I thought it was going to be hard because I had jumped, tried to jumpstart this record a few times over the last 10 years. And I just, you know, you know, wasn't good enough. This time it was good enough. And so it has gotten me to that point of, yes, I would love to make a record, like you said, every other year and hopefully, you know, get this back out there, you know, where people can start, you know, you know, saying my name again, you know, thinking of me as a guitar player again, you know, I think that would be, you know, fantastic. On the other hand, you know, <laughs> I'm getting up there in age. I mean, you know, I know rock and roll is taking a different turn and there's a lot of gray haired people <laughs> playing rock and roll these days, you know, and still doing a great job. You know, I, I have feelings about that and I just don't know if that's for me, you know? So, um, I, I, the honest answer is I don't have an answer, but I would hope that it would, you know, jumpstart something to really be more active. Yeah, and and I think fans need to understand or, or or appreciate the fact that you do have a life going on. You do have sort of a, a Monday to Friday routine, and to get back on the road and and do it disturbs all that. And is it worth sort of throwing up what's going on now just to go play, you know, for seventy five minutes in in Wisconsin? It, it's it's right, and, and that's not to be disrespectful to Wisconsin, of course, but uh, of course, right? of course. Well, it's also you know we're all at different points of our lives, you know, and you know. I look back, you know, you know, I have a daughter and uh, she's uh, 24 and she actually sings and she plays guitar and she has a band and she's out there, you know, and, you know, there were points there where I missed stuff because I was out on the road. I'm always, you know, my suitcase is always by the front door, you know, and I'm always taken off and I, and I miss so much stuff. We even talk about when she was born. It's like I missed the first five years of her life. You know, I mean, I was always, I, we literally had our daughter and I left the next day to go on the Slash the Snake Pit tour. Ugh, you know, it's that's like, rough. It's rough. And so, you know, where, you know, there were periods where I was a little in, in, inactive and it had to do with that. You know, I did want to spend a little more family time. I mean, now, you know, my daughter's, you know, has her own thing and she doesn't care whether I'm home or not. She's got her own life. You know, now it's like I'm going, hey, I wouldn't mind, you know, going to Bangladesh for a couple of shows. You know, I mean, it might be kind of fun. Let's head on before, I was always thinking about going home. Yeah, you see. And uh, Gilby, I could do this for the next hour, but I do have Alice Cooper calling in at uh, in 10 minutes. And so so I'm going to get to that. But but thank you so much. And and anytime you want to do another one, just just give me a call, drop me an email and let's let's promote this album because your albums and the music you've been part of 
uh, have been a soundtrack to my life and uh, happy to help. I mean, and really, that Pawn Shop's guitar, especially if you get that Japanese version with um, West of the Sunset. West of the Sunset, right on. Those 12 <laughs> songs, you've got to get over to like Rock Candy or one of those companies that redoes albums and just throw out the deluxe edition because it's, it's yeah, great stuff. Thank you for saying that. That, that has been a a thorn in my side of it being on Virgin Records and unavailable. <laughs> yeah, it, pay, pay, well, then, hey, get, get, the, get the new guys and uh, re-record, like, four or five songs for, for like, bonus tracks on, on a deluxe edition of the new new album coming out. You know what? what? That's hell? a great idea. I never even thought of that. But yeah, yeah, and, and redo He's a Whore from the Blues album, and, and we're, we're, we're <laughs> right good on. to go. But thanks, Mitch. I mean, we need, we, like, you know, we spoke earlier, we, we need your support. You know, you know, rock and roll is a little bit on the underground right now. You know, but that's okay. I don't, we don't mind being the the dirty stepchild. You know, it's what it's supposed to be anyway. So you know, I, I've said this to other people, and I'll say it to you. I, I think rock has become sort of the jazz of our, of our generation. You look back in the 1920s and 30s, the jazz age, and it was everywhere, everywhere. And then rock and roll with Elvis and all came over. I think we've just sort of become the new jazz. It'll never die. Yeah, of course. But it yeah. probably won't be stadium rock in the next 10 years but so what yeah. who cares yeah i agree i agree i also you know i tell my daughter this all the time and this is what i do believe in, and it has more to do with the younger generation than anything else in the early 80s rock was bleak mm-hmm. i mean it was bleak it was yep. duran duran it was the cars it was blondie it was elvis costello uh you know flock of seagulls it was bleak you know, it, it, it got overbloated with progressive rock and whatever, and it made a comeback one thing at a time. And it was even little things like, you know, in L.A. having the Cat House and the Scream and, and New York having the Cat Club. It was just little by little rock came back, and then it became that monster that it was during the 80s. It's possible. It is. And and again, just to draw the comparison to, to jazz, jazz came back where almost every city now has a jazz festival that brings in hundreds of thousands of people. So we're, yes. we're, we're there. Uh, thank you, sir. I will go uh, wel- be welcomed to Alice's Nightmare here in seven minutes. And uh, <laughs> yeah, keep, keep, you know, anytime, anytime you, you want to plug anything, just give me a shout. Well, hopefully next time will be when this record gets a release date. You got it, Mitch. Absolutely. Merci. Thank you. You're welcome. Cheers. From the Westwood One Podcast Network.